Man, it's amazing to see how God's working, um, not only in Shelby's life, who's just an incredible inspiration for all of us, but there are multiple entire families baptized. There's 64 people in all who were baptized at Honeymoon Island. Isn't that great? It's wonderful. <clears throat> From children to students, young adults and adults, um, God's doing some amazing things at Harborside. And I love seeing the community of, of Harborside, even on the beach, just watching and celebrating uh, with all those people. So we were just happy that there was no like hurricane watch and tornado watch, you know, that's what usually happens at those things. But there's something I've learned uh, over the past few years, and it's that there are certain things that you face in life. There's certain things and situations or experience that you come across that you just can't be prepared for in life. Like there's no book or uh, online article or parental advice that can really set you up for success when it comes to certain things that you have to go through in life. You just have to face them and figure it out as you go. And the thing that stands out to me the most is the idea of childbirth. Now, I've had, I haven't had two children. My wife and I, we've had two children in the past few years. In that whole scenario of, you know, nine months of being pregnant and then the whole delivery process is just unbelievable. And it's one of the most tiring and exhausting things that you go through. And I'm not even talking about for my wife. I'm talking about for me, all right? Be a little selfish here, all right? I mean... To the point that Harper, our first, it took 20 hours, the delivery, the labor. 20 hours the morning all the way till 11, 11 at night she was born. And I remember, I don't know if there's any other man in the world that has done this, but an hour after Harper was born and I had that moment, you know, when it just sinks in and that responsibility hits you for the rest of your life that you have to oversee this child. When I handed her back to Heather, I said, babe, I'm tired. I need a nap. I told her that, like, I don't know what you've been through, but I'm super tired, and I, I, need a, I need a nap. And I seriously, for like two hours, I took a nap. Isn't that terrible? That's, that's the type of husband I am. It's good. Um, but I was just wiped. I mean, just supporting her, and it's an amazing act of perseverance, that whole delivery and pregnancy. It's incredible. And so I thought we had a template with the, with the second one, that we would be mentally prepared for when our second, Paisley, was born, who's now seven months. I thought we had it down. There's a template to go by and we know what to expect and how things are going to go. And of course, it's completely different, right? So it started the same as early in the morning, contractions were happening and Heather was starting to feel it. But about seven o'clock in the morning, she wakes up and she says, Griffin, these contractions are big and they hurt and today is the day. And it was a Sunday and so I, I didn't come to church. We were just ready for it. But I was in the mode where I remember the 20 hours and how exhausting it was. And I was like, Heather, let's not get our hopes up. We're not going to go in too early and we're not going to get ahead of ourselves. You know, when, when the husband thinks he's a lot smarter than he really is. You know, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. But um, I thought I had it down. And so she's going through this. And about 8, eight o'clock, she starts to feel like the pain. Like she, said, she started to say, Griffin, we need to go. We need to get there. This is happening. And I still just didn't believe her. I still thought I had it down. And, and I was like, well, we're going to be there for like 15 hours. Let me just jump in the shower. And I, exactly, yeah. And so I, I jump in the shower. And I'm, I'm just like soaping it up and singing. You know, I don't have a care in the world. And then all of a sudden, five minutes in, I hear this groaning from like a scary movie in the other room. And I come out and Heather's on all fours, like looking at me like, hurry up, we got to go. I'm like, man, she's not kidding. Like, she's serious. 
And so we get ready and we get her into the car and she says, Griffin, you need to run every red light. You need to speed. You need to get there. Like, because I never speed, you know, we just need to get there. All right. So we're going, we're going. And then if I didn't think she was serious yet, her water broke in my car. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, this is for real. Like, this is happening, all right? And so we speed up there, and she's saying, like, I can push right now. It's about to happen. And so we pull up, and we use a birthing center, which is midwives, and it's a little different from the hospital. And these women are amazing. They're so calm and so loving. They're spirit-led, like, praying over us this entire process. And we show up, and I, like, kick my door open. I finally get the, the picture. I leave the car in the ignition. I'm running around, like just yelling for people to come out and help us, right? And this, this woman walks out like she's at a five-star hotel, like, hi, welcome. She's so calm, like, do you want to take you to your room? And I'm like, get the door, we got to go. Like, it's about to happen in my, we almost had the child on Belcher. Like, come on, we got to go, we got to go, right? And so we take her down and like, my wife's like waddling too, like just barely getting to the room. She lays on the bed and literally five minutes later, that we see the baby coming, like five minutes in, right? And I will never forget this. But the midwife comes around and she looks at me and she goes, Griffin, do you want to catch her? <laughs> no, no, no. That's why, that's why we ran red lights and sped. You're the expert. Like, nobody wants me to have that role right now. Like, you do your job. I'm going to go try not to pass out. And like, if I was going to do it, I would have stayed at home and taken a nap in an hour in my own bed, you know? No, please, do you do that. And literally, seven minutes after we got there, we had Paisley. I mean, it was just this whirlwind experience, right? But every time I look back on that, I just think about how my wife just persevered through this incredible situation. The strength and just the mental attitude she had to have to get through that. I couldn't do it. I love stories of perseverance. And the reason I love stories of perseverance is because when people think that there's something good enough or important enough to just go through pain and, and struggle and to fight through, they know that it's worth it because of what comes out in the end, right? What you gain from just striving to fight through whatever you have to, you know they're persevering because there's something great. There's a great return at the end. And you may have that even in, in your marriage or even in relationships or with a job that it's worth it to fight through the hard situation because you know it's worth it in the end. Something good will come from this. And I love seeing just people fight through that. And then you think about a relationship with God. And you know in any relationship it takes perseverance, right? It takes work to make a marriage happen or a friendship or any relationship and we know that it takes perseverance to stay in a good place with God, right? To, to keep growing in our faith and, and knowing more about Him, it takes work, it takes effort, it takes perseverance. But I think there's one aspect of a relationship with God that many of us in the room, if not all of us, would find very difficult. We find it to be very hard and challenging to persevere in one aspect of a relationship with God in our lives. And it's the idea of prayer. I think many of us in the room, if we were honest, we find ourselves at times in our life when, when things are hard or when things are busy or when life is happening that we find ourselves not approaching God in prayer. It's hard to persevere with God in pursuing Him and calling on Him in prayer. 
And I actually think there's, there's three different reasons for that. And maybe you fall into one or a few of these categories. And the first one is this question. It's the question you may ask about prayer is, am I worthy? Have you ever thought about that question when you think about praying to God? Like, God's got all these people to worry about in bigger scenarios and harder situations that that person has. And look at the world and all the needs that are out there. I mean, does God really love me enough? Does he really value me enough to hear and care about my prayers? I mean, does he, does he really look at me and value me enough to, to hear every need and every desire that I have? Am I literally, am I good enough for the God of all creation to care about just me? Does he really hear my prayers? And so maybe you ask the question, does God really value me that much? Or maybe you fall into this category when it, when it comes to prayer. And it's the question you ask of, is God going to show up for me? I know a lot of us, this may be the big one that many of us struggle with. That, I mean, when I come to God in prayer and my deepest struggles and my desires, and, and I'm in just at a point where I need God the most. I mean, I need him to show up. And some of our stories are that he just didn't. I mean, he just, he just didn't show up in the, in the way that I expected him to or in the time frame that I needed him. And so what this question does, it starts to produce a little bit of fear, right? That if I pray and God doesn't show up, it starts to impact and affect the way that I see God. And we start to doubt him. And some of us, we're scared to pray for certain things in our life because we don't have the confidence that God's going to show up in the way that we think we need him. And so we stop pursuing him in prayer because we don't know if he's going to show up. Or maybe you fall into this third category. Maybe you struggle with this prayer. Is it worth my time? I mean, I've got family. I've got school. I've got kids. I've got other things that are pulling me. And, and I'm trying to just juggle all the plates. Just keep the plates spinning. I've got things pulling at my time all, the, all day, every week, all the time. And so if it's like 50-50 of whether God's going to show up and answer my prayers or not, I mean, is it really worth my time? Like, is it, is it worth me just making time in the morning or on the drive to work or at night and just taking the extra time to pursue him in prayer? If I don't even have the confidence that he is really going to show up and provide what I think he needs to provide for me, do I have the confidence that, God, it's worth it to just find myself consistently pursuing you in prayer? Yeah, I think many of us, if we were honest, we ask those questions. And there's a, there's a big lack of confidence when it comes to prayer and the importance and what we gain from it. You see, when I read the scripture that we're going to read today, when Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, as we continue in the series in Matthew, when he starts to talk about prayer, it's incredible to me how much confidence Jesus has when it comes to the idea of prayer. I mean, I think most of us walk in the room and we think about this idea as we struggle with it. But whenever you hear Jesus talk about prayer, it's just this natural confidence that something comes from it, that it's an incredibly significant part of our life. And so in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, we're going to read six verses on Jesus talking about this idea of prayer. And he starts by saying this. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. 
He says, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Then he says, So which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? And he continues, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And he finishes with the golden rule, verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. And so Jesus just ushers us in to thinking about what it means to pray. And he talks about this, this threefold invitation and the promises that come with it. And he just makes it sound so easy, doesn't he? He, he basically, it seems like he's saying that when, when you pray, God shows up. And great things happen, right? That when, when you come to God, he's going to do amazing things. He hears you, he loves you, and he shows up. And incredible things happen in the deepest struggles in your life that you bring to him. But you see, we walk in the room with those three questions on our mind. Am I worthy? Is God really, really going to show up when I need him the most? Is it really worth my time? And the question I kept asking myself when I read this over and over is how in the world does Jesus approach prayer with such confidence? How does, he, how does he have this innate natural confidence that when he prays, there's this incredible trust when he prays? He has an incredible confidence that leads him to consistently find himself pursuing God in prayer. How does he have that? And the question for us today is, how do you and I obtain a confidence in prayer that finds you and I valuing prayer enough to find ourselves persevering and pursuing God in prayer consistently? And so when you read this scripture, and you step back a little bit, there's there's three aspects of what Jesus is teaching that is showing how we create this, this confidence in prayer. And the first one is found in verse 8, and he starts off by just this threefold invitation. He says, ask, seek, and knock, and you get an audience with God. But then he says this in verse 8. He says, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. You see, in this culture, the Jewish people were so anticipating the Messiah to return so that they, they thought they had this exclusivity with God, this relationship that God was going to restore uh, the Israelites and the nation so that they could be powerful and that they can rule and govern over the earth with God's sovereignty and his righteousness and his holiness. And they thought they were exclusive. And then Jesus opens us up in this Sermon on the Mount to the idea of prayer And he shatters this idea of not feeling worthy to approach God when he says this word, everyone. And he basically just lays it out that anybody who desires to be in the presence of God and to be heard in prayer by him has access to God. He says there's no disqualification for anybody. There's nothing in your past that you've done There's nothing that you're currently doing that goes against God or nothing that you will do that disqualifies you from coming to God in prayer. It is an open door policy at all times that God invites us to pray to him. There's no disqualification. The only disqualifier is a lack of faith. 
It's a lack of belief that God values you enough to hear your prayers. And so for some of us in our relationships, in our life, maybe in a marriage or in a relationship or a friendship or with your parents or siblings, you've been in a situation where when you were in need the most, and when you had hurts and, and struggles and fears and anxieties, you felt like there's no one around you that cares enough to listen and to help you and to hear you. And you feel this void that in, in your relationships that no one cares enough to hear you out and to provide assistance and help for you. And what Jesus is saying is that please do not lump God into that scenario. He says, we have a God that has opened the doors, the floodgates for anybody to come to him in prayer. We all have access to him. And so then Jesus kind of makes a shift. And he takes the the mindset off of what the promises of prayer are. And he shifts our focus to the object of who we are praying to. And he leads into, I love it, it's very simple. He leads into an illustration about a father with a son, right? And a father, he sets it up that the relationship of the father is to provide for his children, right? Very simple. So in in verse 11, he sums it up by saying this about a father and a son. He says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And so it got me thinking about this relationship between a father and a son. It made me think about my dad. And so my dad is, is like too giving. He's one of those guys that just is too giving to, he has two sons, me and my older brother, and we have to stop him from being so generous at times. He's just an amazing father in that way. But, there's always a but when you talk about parents, right? But we were on a trip to Alaska when I was like in fifth grade. We went on this cruise to Alaska, an amazing vacation. We valued family vacations. And you may not know this about me, but I get motion sick very easily. Like standing still, I can get motion sick, all right? It's so simple for me. It's terrible. But we went on this horseback riding trail for two hours with our family, right? And so you know how on a vacation there's a parent that always has to document literally every moment They're taking pictures of like the meals we had. You know what I mean? And then they make you like what? They look at every picture when you get home and it's like as long as the vacation, you know? So my dad had that role. He had camcorder and a still camera wrapped around his neck to capture everything, all right, on this horseback riding trip. And so we go. And my dad, you know, he's got the camcorder and he's just bouncing. He's like commentating. He's like, look at the leaves on that tree. You know, it's like... Who cares, you know? But we're going, and like an hour in, I start to feel sick. I got motion sick on a horse. It's horrible, right? That's my life. And so I, I look at my dad, and I'm like, because he's, he's dad. He's the provider. He's supposed to help me in anything, right? And I go, dad, my stomach hurts. And he look over, and here's dad. Nothing. It's just, it's like, look at the horse, right? You know, he's just commentating, and he didn't say anything to me. So like a minute goes by, and, and I'm like, dad, seriously, my stomach's killing me. He goes, okay. He just stays with his job, right? And to his credit, like, what is he going to do? Just throw a, you know, take out of his fanny pack, Pepto-Bismol, and throw it. I don't know what he's supposed to do. But I had this expectation that that he's dad. He takes care of it. And so finally, the third time, I started to get, like, angry at him because he wouldn't do anything. His his camcorder is locked to his eyes. And I said, dad, my stomach hurts. And then the camcorder goes down, and I knew I was in trouble, right? He looks at me, and he goes, so what do you want me to do about it? (laughs) 
he got like defensive, like figure it out. And so I jumped off and I got sick in the bush, you know, I just got sick. See, but we all understand it's very simple, even if it's not your story with your parents, is that a father is meant to be the provider for his child. We know that, right? And Jesus opens us up with this illustration. He says, listen, when, when you're thinking about prayer with God, how do you see God? That's the question. How do you see him when you approach him in prayer? When you think about confidence, he goes, he goes let me make a distinction. We've got earthly fathers, and when you think about an earthly father, you know, you know that when their child is in need, they are supposed to provide. When they are in need the most, when they need something to keep them going, a father is going to provide. And then he makes a a distinction. He says, so how much more will your heavenly father, who by the way is perfect and holy and perfect in his love and his righteousness, and by the way, he sent his only true son to die on a cross for your sins so that you can be seen by him as adopted into his family as your father, and he sees you as his children. How much more would a perfect God desire deeply within him to provide for his children. And you notice the exclamation point. He emphasizes this. He basically says, do you realize the God that you are praying to? He says, do you understand the role that God established with you and I as believers that he sees you as his daughter and as his son? And naturally, innately within God to the perfect degree. He desires to provide for his children. That is the God you're praying to. And he says, you get this with your own, with your own parents. Because even though you have sin within you, you understand the significance of providing for your kids. How much more would your heavenly father want to provide for his children? And he shifts our focus when it comes to confidence in prayer to God. One of the questions is, how do you see the God you're praying to? Do you understand and claim that he is the perfect heavenly father? And not only do you have access, he sees you as a child that he loves more than you can imagine. You see, and then he he goes a little bit further in the same verse. This is where I think we all have to kind of answer this question to be confident in pursuing God consistently in prayer. And it's another word we'll highlight on here in the same verse. He says, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? See, I think when when we're trying to gain a perspective of having confidence in pursuing God in prayer, we have to ask, we have to answer the question of who is the decider of what is good. And it takes me back to Genesis chapter one. I don't know if you've ever just thought about the language that's used in Genesis chapter one, but we have the creation account. When God just starts creating the earth, he starts creating the world and placing all these things that we live amongst, right? But we all know that after each day and after everything that he created, it says that, and you can finish the sentence, that God saw that it was what? Good, right? And so don't miss the language. In the very first chapter in the Bible, God establishes that he is the decider of what is good. When he created it, And he says, this is good. 
But then you flip the script and go to Genesis chapter 3, when, when the serpent, Satan, is tempting Adam and Eve to take this fruit and to go against God's desires for them and to go against God's protection and provision for them. Don't miss the language in what it says when Adam and Eve decided to jump in with the fruit. When it says this, verse 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for wisdom, she took some and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. See, I want to make the contention Right? That, that what we see and feel in our lives that we think we need from God and we, we place these expectations on God, I know that this is what I need so that I can get this job so I can make this much money and everything comes together. I know I need to be with that person because they're going to make me happy and God, it's right in front of me. Can you see this? Do you value me enough? God, I see what is good. Can you please provide it? And what this teaches us is that God is the ultimate designer and the decider of that which is good for us. And everything that we see and feel and when our emotions are tied into our struggles and our pain and our suffering and what we think we need the most, we don't always see the big picture that God does. And what always feels right in front of us that we decided was good in God's eyes may not be the best. It may not be the best. He sees 10 years. He sees so far down the road, we can't even fathom what's coming. And so the question becomes, not only do you understand you have access to the throne of God whenever you desire, and the God that you're praying to is your heavenly Father that absolutely, without a doubt, loves his children. He desires to provide that which is needed and good for them. Do you trust in in God that what he gives is good? And do you see him as a good father that when you don't receive what you're desiring in prayer, that you've decided that this is what I need for everything to come together and to make me complete and to work for my benefit, do you still trust and see that God is still good because he is the decider of what is good? And we don't receive everything in prayer that we desire and expect Because we aren't the decider of that which is good. And I'm not saying that everything you want that you don't get isn't good ultimately. And and I'm not saying that everything that you go through in life is, is good. Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying that in confidence of God, when you approach him in prayer, do you understand that because he is a good father that loves you as his child, you can say that no matter what you receive or don't receive in prayer, that God is still good. What Jesus says, if you want confidence in prayer, if this huge aspect of a relationship with God is going to be something that you approach with confidence, he says it's a lot less about what you receive in prayer and what you're praying for, and it's a lot more about who you're praying to. He says the person you're praying to is so trustworthy because he is a loving, heavenly father that deeply desires to provide for his children. It's so much bigger than that prayer that you feel you need right now. And it's way more important to focus on the good God, the good father who loves us no matter what. It's more about the God you're praying to when it comes to confidence in prayer 
And it is about what you're praying for. And it's a whole lot more about the expectations. It's more than the expectations we place on God to provide what we need. And Jesus opens us up to the questions that if you don't receive certain things in prayer, do you still trust that he's good? I mean, do you still see him as your heavenly father? Do you still rest on the fact that even if he doesn't provide this, though you think it's the most important need in your life, that he loves you without a doubt and that he proved it on the cross with his son, Jesus Christ. And so do you have confidence to consistently pursue God in prayer? My desire today isn't to help you have more yeses in prayer. It's to understand the God that you're praying to. That's where confidence and consistently persevering in prayer comes from. He's a trustworthy Heavenly Father. So the question is, where where do we go from here? How do we leave with with this in mind and to, to gain that confidence? Because here's what I know is that many of us, when you think about prayer, you'd focus on these three questions. You focus on the fact of, am I worthy Does God value me enough? Is God going to show up? Because I need this, God. I need it the most. Is he he worth my time? If it's 50-50, if he's going to show up. Confidence in prayer is more about the God you're praying to than the results of your prayers. And so today I want to leave you with with a verse found in Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to end in just a moment by, by claiming this idea and worshiping him. But we know that Jesus probably felt some of those same questions with prayer, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was being led to his death. And he's praying to God, God, is this the cup that I'm supposed to drink? Is this really what I'm supposed to be going through? This question of God, is this the best thing? Is this really your will that we go through? Even to the point of death, Jesus had to trust that this is God's will. And he's a trustworthy heavenly father. And he's going to stick to his promises. He's going to resurrect him three days later. And his plan will happen regardless of what we think we need or don't. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. It says, But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Then it says this, So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And church, I want to just usher you into the idea that God has given access to everyone. You are not disqualified, even if you feel unworthy or even if you don't feel good enough or even if you feel too sinful. God welcomes everyone to his throne. But he says, when you come to me in your throne, you're approaching your heavenly father. I know how to provide, but I know how to provide what's needed. Do you trust me as your father? I love my children more than you can ever imagine. Do you come to me and trust that no matter what you receive in prayer, I know what is good, which means that I am a good father. And so my hope today is that you walk out of this room with just an instilled confidence in the God that you're praying to. And it is worth your time to pray because he'll show up when he knows it's needed the most because he knows what is good. And so I want to give you a chance to participate in this a little bit. I left your notes page completely open with no notes for a reason because I'd I'd love to invite you to do something. 
Because maybe in your life right now, you know there's, there's a need. Maybe in your life or a family member's life or someone you know that maybe you've stopped praying for. Maybe you've just stopped persevering and pursuing God in prayer because it's hard. And you feel like maybe he's not listening. Maybe he's not going to show up. Maybe he's not on the time frame that I need him the most. And maybe you've just given up in approaching God. Or maybe there's something that you face today or that you face tomorrow that you haven't even prayed about. You know you need God to just give you peace or to give you direction or wisdom or to, to just work something out for you. I want to invite you to pray. And I want, you, I want to invite you to write it down on your bulletin. Just write down someone's name or something that, that you're struggling with, something that you're dealing with that maybe you've given up on in prayer. Something you need the Father to help you with. And you see, whatever happens with that prayer, if you have the confidence to approach him, you know, whatever the answer, that God, you're a good father. I trust you, no matter what, because you know why? You know what is good. You are a good father. And I can trust you in anything. So my hope is that you leave with a confidence of prayer in the God that you're praying to. So I'm going to ask you to stand if you would, and I'm going to pray, and and Adrian's going to lead us in a just two minutes of a worship song to, to claim that we trust that God is a good God. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the truth that even though we don't receive the answers in prayer that we always desire, and, and even though not everything that happens in life makes, it doesn't make sense all the time, but God, Jesus has this confidence in coming to you. And he's confident that you've opened the door to allow us to have access to you and your throne. And the God that we approach is a heavenly father who sees us as his children. And he knows what is good. And God, whatever you provide, and whatever you do, and we bring these prayers to you, we trust that you are good because confidence in prayer is way more about who we're praying to and less about the answers in prayer that we get. And so God, we claim this truth. You're a good father. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.